thanks for listening to the Adulting is Easy podcast. This is Lauren, and I have another Wealth Wednesday recording for you from October 19th, 2022. We talked about one year from today. You'll be glad you started. This was really an awesome one. It was me, Stephen, Tom. We had AC up. We had Mary up. Lawrence told an amazing story as well. Lots of great tips. I learned a lot and left really inspired, and I think you will too. Apologies in advance for the weird start. We had some technical difficulties, but we got rolling after that. We'll see you next week for Real Estate Horror Stories. Cut off while we're waiting for Lauren to come back. My name's Tom. I am 40 years old. I live in Dallas, Texas. I have 21 rentals across Dallas and um, Toledo, Ohio. I left my nine to five earlier this year. I do eBay um, reselling and I do um, rentals and I do the frugal gay, which has become part of a a part-time job. I'll say that at least we come here every week with Lauren, Clint, Stephen, and I, and next Wednesday will be our final Wealth Wednesday. Stephen, do you want to give an intro while we're waiting for Lauren, or is she back? Go ahead I'm, and unmute. I'm scared to do anything, actually. You sound good now, so I think we're we're back in business, unless anyone else hears differently. That's it. I'm quitting next week. I think we are all good with that. We will all go out with a roar. Okay, guys. So Lauren's back. We have no echo. We will uh, get going here now. Um, The reason we chose this topic tonight, one year from today, you'll be glad that we started. Um, We want to share kind of how we started, why we started, and what we did to start. And I will go ahead and start unless Lauren or Stephen want to, because I started. All right. Lauren gave the heart. I'm not sure if Stephen has dropped off or not, but um, I started when I was 21. I bought the first rental property, not because I thought of it as a wealth hacking tactic, but I didn't want to pay $475 in rent, which is what my rent was when I was 21. I was pre-approved. I worked at The Gap. I made $850 an hour, and I was pre-approved for a $100,000 loan back then. I was a senior in college, and I bought a duplex intentionally. Um, it had a tenant in it. She lived downstairs. She paid $600. It was the nice, pretty unit. That was the unit I wanted to live in. But my grandmother and my father talked me into living in the ugly small unit upstairs because then my mortgage, my insurance, and my tax would only be $138 after I collected rent. It made sense. So I started with that. Uh, there were additional, once I got going with that, that was a money maker. I bought a dud in 20, when I was 23 years old, I bought a single family house and I lost money on it every single year, but I saw the value that I was getting out of the one rental. Cause once I moved out of that, I was actually cash flow positive $400 a month or $300 a month at the time. And, um, I kept buying rentals because I knew that I could do it and I knew how to do it. There were other things that I was doing to grow my rental portfolio, like eBay flipping. Um, I got into stocks in the, around 2010, 2011, when, when stuff had bottomed out and, um, I have been aggressively buying stocks. Um, I wouldn't say aggressively because I'm not dropping $500 in a week anymore. Like I was when I had a nine to five but I throw in at least a hundred to $300 every week into buying stocks. This has set me up. So I feel, I felt very comfortable in 2019. I was ready to leave my job. I, I 
put myself in a position where I was generating enough income between eBay, between the rentals. And it was about 15 or 16 rentals at the time um, that I felt comfortable transitioning away from my job. Uh, the stocks are just icing. It's all on um, reinvestment, automatic reinvestment on the dividends. And um, I continue to, to put money in every week. Um, I'm going to let Lauren or Steven go. Tom, Tom yeah. no, I, I have a question for you, Tom. Sure. So um, I know like the last year that you had, uh, there was a bit of hesitation or that, hey, one more year syndrome before you left your nine to five. How many doors do you think you needed in order to comfortably, well, not, not comfortably, but at least pull the shoe? How many doors do you think you needed? I always said I would I would quit at 10, but I just kept buying additional for backup for more security for an extra four to 600 to whatever each property cash flows. I also, um, in 2019, I put in my notice. In 2021, I actually put in my notice and left. Um, I backed down because I was just nervous and it was a self-doubt issue. And I changed my surroundings and I changed the people that I hung out with and they built me up enough to believe that I could do this myself. And um, we're eight or nine months into it at this point and I still believe that I can do this. Um, I have only dipped into savings one time since uh, leaving my job and it was a $400 red month in August. And part of that is because I am doing renovations on two rentals that I bought in May and August. So I have some big money going out for flooring and light fixtures and paint and they've been some 6000 and uh, the other one was a $9,000 renovation. So I have otherwise been putting continuing to put money into my savings and generating income. I think my safety net at this moment is definitely my eBay store. Um, I can do it as little or as much as I like. And if I ever have a down day or a self-doubt day, uh, I told Lauren last week on um, Wednesday, I just sat and I listed stuff on eBay and um, I shared it in Cashflow University. I had bought these um, toothbrushes at Kohl's last year. I had Kohl's cash to use and they were about, they ended up being about $14 a toothbrush and I had never listed them. I had never done anything. They were just sitting with my eBay stock and um, I was listing and I scanned them and they came up and they were $80 for some reason. And I'm like, why are these $14 toothbrushes $80 a year, a year later? And, um, it turns out that they were discontinued and that's one of the things that I've always focused on is buying discontinued end of season clearance merchandise. And it turns out that these toothbrushes people still like, and I sold them within 48 hours. I sold them for 80 bucks a piece. Uh, so I turned $28 into, um, 160, uh, just because I sat there and I listed them and, and, you know, I had bought them with Kohl's cash last year. So that's kind of my safety net. Whenever I, I am struggling, I get more aggressive on eBay. And whenever I am having a good month, I seem to put eBay on the back burner, but we're also in fourth quarter now. So eBay has been, uh, at the top of my list for priorities to get a few items listed every day. And what are you doing to get ready for perhaps Thanksgiving or Christmas? So we're already set because I bought every like 
I bought my sweaters that I'm selling right now, my jackets. I bought those back in June and July. And um, like right now, today, I was buying shorts. They had two packs of shorts for two bucks shipped. And those are going to be coming in for April or May. Um, so I'll hold them in storage until it is time for short season again. So we're, we're set on fourth quarter. The only thing that I'm really throwing up right now is stuff that I just haven't been able to list because I had too much of it. Tom, you're patient, and you know how to find a good deal, and you are willing to buy off season and hold it for six months, four months, whatever that is, and you're able to make tremendous money, flip that, and uh, make real estate investments that are awesome. Yeah, absolutely. That's been my focus is buying the out-of-season stuff that nobody wants. Uh, that's what I do with the houses, and that's why... When I have these trolls come at me, and I've had a couple trolls just in the past week come at me about I'm house hoarding and I'm doing an injustice. Like, I think that last year in 2021 is the first time, and I remember I said this to my husband, I said, this is the first time I've actually bought a house that you could move into. And it was the house that we bought for ourselves and we could move in. It was just really ugly, but it didn't need anything immediately. Like the houses that I bought this year all needed crazy amounts of windows and flooring and work and caved in countertops and i've never really bought one of those moved in move in ready so i've just always focused on what can i do to make it move in ready and what how can i make money on this and it's the same thing with you know nobody wants fleece pajamas in july but i will stand there in line and wait for those nautica fleece pajamas to be a dollar 97 because i know that everyone's going to want the nautica fleece pajamas in november so that's just uh one of my tactics for and and what i also like about the ebay stuff in addition to that housing is it's a low point of entry you know i started flipping out of necessity because i didn't have enough money for college and i bought a cart full of purses that were a dollar fifty a purse and i wheeled them up to the register and i sold them two at a time on ebay and it paid for my books and it helped me pay for that semester that year so I just always focus in on the items that no one wants, like the ugly houses. And that's what I did with when I started buying houses in Dallas in 2009. I'm just looking at the ugly stuff that's been on the market. The one that I bought in August had been listed since January. It was bank owned. It was ugly, but it had really good bones. And that's why I wanted it. And I, when I went, I said to the realtor when she was showing it to me, I'm like, I like this more than I'm supposed to because it was a nice house, but it was just really ugly. And we threw in a really low offer since it was bank owned and nobody was looking at it. And I thought there was no way they were going to take it. And they came back a week later and they took it. Tom, you were retired when you left your movie theater job. Did you know you were going to use eBay as a kind of backup, as a safety net? Did you know you were going to do that? Or did you think you were going to quit, quit the eBay and maybe just do the real estate stuff? Every time I think I'm going to quit eBay, I have like a really good day. Like there was a day when we were at FinCon and we had a thousand dollars in sales. So it's one of those that I loved. It's, it's work. It does take time. That's why those toothbrushes sat with me for as long as they did. Um, but Saturday I made a point, uh, we had a good afternoon. And then that evening we sat and watched Shit's Creek and we processed five boxes and anything that were in those five boxes, either one got donated. Got, number two got um, bundled and sold as a bundle or three got listed because there's stuff that will come in damaged. And by the time we've processed it, it's just 
like we had a snag and a, a purse so we threw that in the donate pile we had um we, we have stuff that will just come in so so yeah so every time i think that i'm ready to quit ebay i have one of those really good days and then i just keep at it because i know since i've been doing it for 20 years if things get tough i can generate income this way I have a weird question for you, Tom, about like starting. So we're talking tonight about, you know, a year from today, you'll be glad you started, right? I feel like I, when I started, it wasn't this like, it wasn't this like ordained thing. I wasn't like, you know what, today is the day I changed my life. I wasn't thinking that when I was 22 years old, they wanted to move out of my parents' house because I was sick of my brother doing drug deals in the middle of the night and waking me up and I had to work the next day, right? So I want to leave my parents' house. I go to buy this house. And I don't think I knew that that day, which was April 4th, 2012. I mean, I'm sorry, October 4th, 2012. So like a year, like, like 10 years ago this month, right? I go under contract on this house. I'm going to move out. I don't know that I knew that that was the moment that I was starting. I was just curious, Tom, if it was like that for you as well. No, I didn't know I was starting, but I knew that I had to do something and I was already working full time at Gap at the time. And I didn't know that this was the start of what I was going to be doing for 20 years when I bought that first rental or when I sold that first item on eBay. But I knew that I had to do something because it was not getting easier working at the Gap, making $8.50 an hour, folding sweaters and staying up all night and then oversleeping for an exam the next day. So this was my alternative. This was my best option at that time. And because I've done it for as long as I've done it, it's it's been a fallback for me. So I didn't know I was starting a real estate career or an eBay flipping career, right? Different thing at that time, but this is what I did and it stuck with me because I know how to generate income from it. What about the frugal gay? Did you know you were starting something when you started your Twitter account? I didn't. Um, I actually started the frugal gay like back in 2014 and I had a little anonymous blog with it and I had um, some failed attempts where I would start and stop and start and stop and then maybe so I started this account back in March of 2021 and uh, I interacted with others in the community before I really got on here and started doing stuff. And I knew that this was the direction that I wanted to go. I knew that being part of the personal finance space was important because that was also another thing why I do eBay because I like to stay debt free. I don't like to carry a ton of debt. I'm under leverage compared to a lot of real estate investors, which is unheard of and mocked by many, but I just don't like to bury myself in debt. So when I went back into this, I had some support. And I remember the first couple of people that actually followed me back that were in the personal finance space. And um, even uh, Stephen was the first person that I worked with on an article. Lauren was my first uh, podcast. So I got welcomed. And then once I started interacting and talking with other people, like I was super intimidated, I remember, by FI Squirrel because he was always putting um, – these little great gifts out and I don't I don't know and same with business famous like those were people that I was like ooh, they're cool but I don't want to mess with them I was really intimidated by Sean too isn't that kind of interesting I don't know why um Sean you're intimidating and you don't have the mics you can't talk uh -huh. um <laughs> no I'm just kidding I love you Sean so Tom that's a good that, what I'm 
what I'm thinking about as you're talking is sometimes you start and you kind of don't know that you're starting. And I think another thing too, like when I started Adulting is Easy, for example, it started as a blog and then my husband's like, you should do a podcast. And that podcast was me telling my sister stuff. And then it turned into me interviewing experts. And then I started to be like, all right, I need to grow the Twitter to grow the podcast. And now Twitter is kind of its own thing where I'm just kind of growing for the sake of growing and meeting people and networking and learning. So um, sometimes when you start, it's like you don't necessarily, I know this is so against seven habits of highly effective people, right? Where it's like begin with the end in mind. I have almost in every way just started something not knowing where it was going to go, right? I took the job at Toys R Us right out of school because it was 2012 and the job market sucked and I wanted to be closer to my sister, you know, because my brother was going through all of his stuff and I wanted to be there for her. And like that was the job that I had. Right. And I didn't know I didn't even that was a job, right? Not a career. And then I just wanted to get out of that. So I went to a training company and I did accounting for them. And here we are. That was 2013. Nine years later, I'm still in training. And I've gotten promoted a couple of times and now I'm doing, you know, been doing sales for you know a very long time now. And I didn't know that when I was taking that job at a training company that I was starting a career. So sometimes it's like just momentum, right? Just, you know, I guess it's cliche. The object in motion tends to stay in motion thing. But I've told, when I've told people, Hey, I'm doing this thing now. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. They're like, good. You know what? Just keep doing things. Keep acting. You know, something will hit. You're casting all your lottery tickets or you're going to, you know, the worst thing you're going to do. I mean, you're going to learn something, right? No matter what you do, you're going to learn something. And that's, only recently have I realized how even being in sales has contributed to the success of my abilities on spaces, right? As mediocre as they've been tonight. But right, this idea of like basically public speaking for an hour and a half every week for like 52 weeks, right? There's this idea of that's kind of a scary thing. I don't know that I would have been willing to do that had I not been having these big time high stakes presentations with the VPs of Fortune 1000 companies for the last six, seven, eight years. Right. So it's very interesting how if you kind of just keep taking steps and even if we're talking about starting, even if you are starting different things, it's almost interesting to kind of watch your skills kind of build on each other. And then you're just you kind of look back and you look back at all of these things that you've done and you can kind of tie it all together with these different themes and things that you're learning and taking with you every step of the way. But it's only because you take that first step. Right. How I mean, Tom, talking about how we got to know each other. I saw Steven post something about the flips that he did during COVID. And I was like, yes, I want to interview somebody about flips. <laughs> and it's so interesting because, like, of course, this all started from real estate. But Steven's, like, done a couple of flips and he has his rental. I mean, he's, like, the covered calls guy, right, the Ethereum guy, right? But I got connected to him because he posted something about flipping real estate. Then he connected me to you and Clint. So it's just kind of interesting how – you, you once you start once you build this momentum you're putting yourself in these positions to learn new things and meet new people that was very long-winded hey steven do you have anything to add like you were just saying there lauren um i was mining ethereum made some terrific and great money off of that it's been very difficult for the last well, ever since the Ethereum merge to make passive cash flow off of Ethereum and mining cryptocurrencies. Uh, so we move into something else. We move, you know, maybe it's a dividend stock or maybe it's selling covered calls, selling cash secured puts, a rental property. Um, Lawrence, what you're just saying there too. During the COVID lockdown and breakdown, 
I was busy flipping properties because I lost all the clients that I had in my um, self-employed business that I run for uh, large corporations. And so when I lost all of that income, put me into a tough spot, uh, but you got to find a way to make ends meet and make it work. And so we started flipping properties with my father-in-law and our family, because we all had nothing to do and we didn't want to sit around doing nothing. And so we found a way to, to make this work. Uh, my brother-in-law, uh, who's in our Discord group, he has become an expert in renting out cars on Turl. And he has become the largest renter host in Canada. It's incredible what he's created in just two short years. He's gone from nothing. He used to have a Chevrolet Avalanche, a Chevy Avalanche, like 2011 Chevy Avalanche to now he has, I mean, it's, it's even difficult to describe how many cars he has if it's 30 or 40 cars because it's always going up and down, always going up and down. He's buying and selling and reselling and renting cars all the time. Like he put in an order for 10 Ford Escapes. Who the heck puts in an order for 10 Ford Escapes? He just says, I want them all black, I want them all this trim, fill it up, let's go. And then Ford fills out the order for him and then they just come in as he, as he completes them. And so being uh, pliable and uh, able to move and make changes and find a way to generate cash flow can really work for you. And so it's been terrific and very impressive to see what he's been able to create from nothing, literally from nothing to now where he has 30 to 40 cars. And I say 30 to 40 because today it's 34, tomorrow it's 36, tomorrow it's 30 because he's always buying and selling these, uh, these cars. Um, and what he focuses on uh, he's a uh, real estate agent by day. What he focuses on and what he's trying to teach me is focus on, and I wanted to get this with you, Lauren, too, is with short-term rentals, is focusing on ex the experience that you want to resell and knowing what the value is that you want to charge. If you don't charge enough, uh, you can very quickly price yourself out of business. And Tom, we, you and I have talked a little bit about this too on some other separate topics. But if you price yourself too low, if you don't charge enough for that product on eBay or for that service or for that car rental or for that short-term rental, you can legitimately price yourself out of business because it will cost you too much to service the low profit that you're getting. And so with a, with a turtle car rental, with a short-term rental, with even a rental property, you do need to consider your total cost of ownership, depreciation, um, interest, servicing costs, maintenance, the whole, the whole thing. And then on top of that, you need to make sure that you're generating enough profit so that you're, it's in your interest. If else just go home like and do nothing and spend time with your family, right? Like, like that guy, like from Uber, you call him Uber, he comes to your house, he picks you up, he takes you to wherever you need to go. Uh, he's spending time with you. He's spending half an hour to an hour with you. Uh, ask him about who he loves in his life. 
It's probably going to be his family. It's probably going to be somebody else, his parents, if he's if he's young, or it's going to be his family if he's older. And here he is spending time with you. Why is that? There's a reason why. And he's got to make sure that he's making enough money for that. He's got to make sure that he's making enough money for that. You're buying his time. And so when you have this asset, when you have this business, when you have whatever this might be, you got to make sure that you're charging enough for, for whatever that service, product, good that you're, that you're willing to resell for. So when you're doing a turtle business, when you're doing a, a short-term rental, make sure you're charging enough to uh to and fo focus on value focus on providing an incredible experience for your guest or for your client or an incredible product that you're proud to resell and charge that money that you're asking for so that that's kind of my tip there uh, Laura. hopefully that helps steven i have a question and this is something that we do in short-term rentals and i don't know if you do this in tarot as well we price a little bit low and i'm doing this a little bit with my coaching. I do, I've been doing some one-on-one -on -one coaching as well. And I'm priced pretty low because I'm kind of figuring out my systems, figuring out my processes, my questions that I want to ask people, the things that I need to do in between meetings, the things that they need to do in between meetings. And we did this with short-term rentals too, with the Airbnbs and stuff like that. When we first started, we priced it lower to get maybe like good reviews, get more people in there, get the bookings going really quickly without, you know, a lot of lead time and things like that. Do you guys do that in Turo? Because I know that's something you, speaking of starting, that's something you just started yeah, doing. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, no, you had been, actually, one of the lessons I learned from you was on your rentals. Don't let them have like a one-month or a three-week rental. You want to get... 10 rentals on Turo as fast as you can because you want to get to all-star host status as quick as you can and you need 10 rentals for that you need 10 trips is what they call it and so out of the gate yeah you're probably gonna have to lower your price down because as much as it is a test for you it's Turo and it's also guests that are testing you they want to test you out and see if you're good. Are you a good host? Are you going to be able to show up on time? Are you going to be able to deliver the car on time? And so out of the gate, yeah, you're probably going to have to lower your price a little bit. So to counteract that, what you want to do is in the application of Turo, you can pull back your um, maximum length of rental. As you're starting off, make sure so it's a little bit shorter. So maybe it's like one week or two week maximum rental period. So that you can build up those uh, those ten trips as quick as possible, and then you get you you show up on time, you take it back on time, you make sure the car is super clean, it's exactly as you describe it, and then once you get all star status, then you can charge a premium price, charge more, uh, and you'll be boosted in their algorithm, just kind of like do with like Twitter, Instagram. As you increase your trust score, if you will, you'll get boosted and pushed into the algo further and uh, you'll be able to make more money on that. So, but eventually, though, you do want to be charging yep. healthy rates. You want to charge that because, like, you're monetizing your house if you're doing a short term rental. You are monetizing that car. You need to be able to cover the cost of that car within two years. 
So if you buy that car for $30,000, you need to be bringing in $15,000 a year for that car. You have uh -huh. yep. or, else not, or else you're just wasting your time. You're just wasting it. It's so interesting, you gotta, you gotta Steven. With like we're talking about like starting different things and I know you've been out on your own in the IT world for a while, but you have start like you've started a lot of new things even since like twenty twenty, right? Like you started with the crypto mining and you started, uh, as far as I know, getting serious about covered calls and you started this Twitter account and you started Turo and now you've started Cashflow University and things like that. So what is it that makes you so willing to try and start new things? <laughs> That's a very personal question, Lord. <laughs> um, I don't know what it is. Uh, to be honest, I don't know what it is. I think, you know, I would never say that I'm an entrepreneur by nature. Um, but I think, you know, part of life and part of growing up and part of maturing is you discover who you really are. And maybe I am, and maybe I have been all along, and I just never knew it. But um, I love taking a chance. I love trying out new things and learning more about myself. Okay, I'll share this. I used to be a competitive cyclist. So to add to your pile of things that I've done, I used to be a competitive cyclist. And one of the guys who was the best competitive cyclist that I worked, that I rode with or worked with or I don't know how you want to call it because when you're competitive cyclists it's a little bit different you're racing with them and you're trying to push each other he would always say to me I want to see speaking as himself I want to see how far I can push my body I want to see how much pain I can endure how far I can push myself and every time I try and do that I'm always very impressed with how far I can go and just how much pain endurance stamina i can endure remember i'm speaking as him not as me that always really set with me and i'm like hmm that really resonates naturally i was not a very gifted cyclist and i never i never uh, i think i won one one race out of like 200 races i won one out of the others, I maybe top, I finished in the top five, oh, three times, top 10, maybe five times. The rest of the time, you're like just fodder, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, you're nothing. You're just there for finding giggles. I'll never forget the day that I won. I'll never forget the day that I finished in the top five. But you learn so much about yourself. You learn how much you can push yourself. You learn how much pain you can endure, all that kind of stuff. Anyways, going back to where you're going with this, Lauren. Um, I think with money, with business, with with all this, to a degree, it's kind of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to see how much pain I can endure. I'm trying to see how much I can do. No, that's so like self-inflating and so self-indulging. But I think that's part of what it is. It's I want to see what I can do and what I can accomplish. Because um, money is just math. Money, money is just math. Investments is just math. Figure it out. Um, create value. Charge a fair price for that item and product. And if it's not selling, it's probably because your marketing sucks. And if it is selling, make sure you're charging at the correct price for that product.
and then time, stability, reliability, all come into a factor. And it's it's a terrific uh, venture because you get honest feedback. Like people aren't just going to part with their money and expect a good or service for nothing or just waste it like because it's their money too like they you know so i i'm sorry i'm getting a little on a soapbox here and stuff but that's what it is i want to see how far i can go with this that's what it is yeah yeah no i get that and i'm really glad you said that and this is something that i wasn't expecting and i used to say this a lot when i was remodeling the bed and breakfast that we bought in june 2020 I, as, as we were finishing that up, I, I remember saying to my husband, I knew we were going to change this house, but I didn't know this house was going to change me. Yes. I wanted to change the house, and then uh, at the end of the day, the house changed you. Yeah, it's true. I mean, and that's that's what real estate has been for me, right? Where I... You know, you, you, do, you do sort of figure out what you can take. Like, I bought this duplex in a D area, and then I ended up with the squatter. And while I still have the squatter, I'm going under contract on this bed and breakfast that's 119 years old, and he's $150,000 worth of work. And all I've re done in my life is paid people to redo two bathrooms, right? And, you know, but I just did it. And then that gave me the strength to later on, you know, buy a six-unit apartment building, which I wouldn't have been able to do before. So... That's something that, Stephen, I think you're right when you're talking about your friend who is this professional cyclist who wants to push themselves. It's kind of an interesting thing. It's not like masochism. You don't like the pain, but it's like you like the result. It's almost like just even going to the gym one time. You may not like being there, but you like how you feel after. And uh, real estate is like that. And any of these kind of entrepreneurial endeavors are like that and people have started calling me an entrepreneur lately Stephen and I've never in my life identified as that so it's interesting that you've gone through that as well um go ahead Tom I just wanted to add in um when you just shared that I just did that um business insider article and it, and it was a second article and it was all about this hoarder house that I bought in 2020 and midway through the interview, I said to the report, I said, I don't know how you're going to make this into a story that people want to read, um, because it, it was just such a draining process. And I did. I made the most money I've ever made doing that hoarder house, and I still own it. But it was the most draining process that I would never do another hoarder house. And I look at houses differently. And um, I said this during the interview, but I felt the person's sadness that hoarded that house as I was emptying it. And you could tell the years and the layers of, you could tell that they had just lost two people and um, you could tell who the people were and you could tell that this was a life that they built with these people that they lost and they had no way to cope and no way to deal with it. But doing that house, even though there was a huge financial gain to doing it, it was so emotionally draining and then it was texas heat draining and it was just a a pile of things and sometimes you don't think about that but these steps that we take today change us and i would never go back at a hoarder house again especially if i were doing the clean out and what it was was i used every penny i had to buy the house um because i could not get a traditional bank or even a hard money lender to loan on it because i had a hole and there were um, a hole in the roof and there were animals running in and out of it um, so I had to do a lot of that process and that was something I didn't think about when I was getting all my money together was 
how draining it was going to be and that, that that was actually going to change me so i just wanted to when you were saying that with the um bed and breakfast that you guys did that just kind of reminded me of the horror house that i did in 2020. That's a great ad, Tom. That's so interesting and, and fascinating. Um, I saw AC pop in. Hey, AC, we're, we're talking about starting, and we've kind of talked a little bit about the different things that we've started over the years, not just kind of our initial foray into real estate or investing or whatever it is, but we've been kind of talking a little bit about some of the recent things we've started, like the Frugal Gay for Tom, Turo for Steven, Airbnb stuff for me. Um, so that's that's where we are. I think you've caught a little bit of the conversation. Yeah, sure. Are we talking about like new projects and some that have failed or sort of things that have spurred success? Oh, a failed one would be awesome. Yeah, I would love to hear that. What's a, what's a failed one? Because we can always learn so much from that. Oh, uh, I was hoping to tell about my highlights, but sure. No, uh, no, uh, I, I have a new business no, idea. We can learn from you. Okay, so... No. Uh, for everyone in the audience, Ellen Croy's been very successful, 300 to 400 houses or doors, very successful. So if we can learn from him and where he has failed or the lessons learned, we can all benefit from that. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll start, I guess, one of my first failed ventures. Uh, you know, I, I learned a lot, but um, typically I, I start a business whenever I face a problem. And, and, I, and I'm sitting in my problem and I said, there's got to be a better way. And I assume if I have this problem, everyone else has the same problem. Um, so what, there's a business idea and, and there's, there's money to be made. So that, that, that's every business I've ever had is, is it comes from that space. And then usually I learn why no one has done that business. Um, and that, and that is, you just, you just have to work around the problem. But I guess the first thing I had, and I guess I never really did a post-mortem on it to really understand why it failed or not. But, um, I was in New York city. I had a new newly born child. And I, I guess I started thinking about schools for the first time and um, New York City was, is, is a weird place where that there, there's you, you can test into schools that are not even in your own borough uh, and there's obviously this huge private school thing. Um, the real estate websites at the time didn't tell you what houses belonged to what school district. It was block by block, one side of the block, maybe one school block was the other. So like it, it was just, it was hard to get this information. And, and, and then also sort of like the qualification, how do you apply? And so I went out to build my first private school slash charter school slash public school, just all this information Hey, let's just have this in one place because I'm a new parent thinking about schools for the first time in my life. And they, there was these consultants you could hire for like $30,000, which I was like, come on, we can solve this by a website. And when I, and I hired someone to populate the first draft, like put in all the information, the address, when is, the, and everyone had different uh, application start dates and, and criteria. And I, so I just collected all this data. And, and basically put it in to make it a searchable website with, with filters. So it was very basic. But then um, what, I, what I quickly learned was it, every school has a different way of doing things. And then they would change their 
info quite often. And so it, my website was, was almost impossible to keep up to date. And then I tried to get people at the school to fill it out and they were not interested in helping me um, because every school has like this back. It's not a problem for the school because the school had hundreds of people on the wait list. So every single one's like, I'm not trying to make this more efficient to get more applications. That's not a problem we have as the school. We have too many applications <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and so it just got to one of those things where it was chicken and the egg, like, like Yelp, almost like Yelp for schools. Like it would be great if everyone knew to go to my website to look for schools and then the schools would probably fill it out. Um, but if it's a one man job, it's just an impossible task. But if no one goes to the best website, it doesn't matter. Like the, the data is never going to get there. The, the feedback, it needs to almost be user generated at that point. And it was just sort of a chicken and egg. And then by the time I figured out where my kid was going to school, I was like, okay, I'm done with this project. It's not a passion of mine. And, uh, but, uh, I, I still think it had, had merit, I, I should say, but I, I don't know if that's, I'm, I'm trying to think of some golden nugget that I learned, but I, I guess <laughs> what, I, what I learned was, Hey, I can do this. Oh. I learned I could start a business and to quote unquote, start a business. I, I, it, I just did this in my spare time at my day job in between meetings and uh, sometimes on the nights and the weekends and hired a guy on Upwork to kind of fill in the blanks. And, um, it basically gave me confidence that like, wait a minute, I, I have a, a website that looks like a real business. Oh, I have a business, that kind of thing. I did get one call. I, I sent out a, a press release and a quote unquote competitor called um, and wanted to just quote, he said he wanted to buy me out or acquire me. And I, I met with him and it was like a big guy in the space. And I, I think he was just more interested in sizing me up or trying to defuse any competition for himself. And I, I, I told him I wasn't interested in working for him. And then it just it didn't go anywhere after that kind of thing. So uh, I don't know if that's what you're looking for. I, I, I guess I, I should do a postmortem on really why, why that died. But if anything, it's, it's if you're listening, anyone listening, the takeaway, hey, I was a one-man shop and, and it doesn't take much to run a business. I didn't even form an LLC for it. Um, but by all the makes and appearances, anyone that went to the website thought it was a company. And I was like, wait a minute, I, I can do this. Let me just do it in another field, something that I'm passionate about. And, and maybe that's the takeaway. Like I didn't, my passion wasn't schools. My passion wasn't the different methods of schools and everything. Uh, I just had a problem. And once my problem was solved, my passion went away. And, uh, you know, with real estate, no matter how many houses I buy, I, I still love it. Yeah, so that's awesome, Alan, and I think that's a really good takeaway with the um, this idea of look what I was able to put together kind of on the side was something I'm not uber passionate about. I wonder what I could do either full-time or, or something with a little even more passion than that. I was wondering, and I think I think we've seen this before in business, like, for example, there was a, a juicer. Does anybody remember this, or did I just learn this in business school and it, like, wasn't really a thing, but... It was like $700 for this juicer. And these people were like so excited about it. You had to buy these special juice packets. I don't exactly know. But the point was like these the people that made this thing, it solved whatever their particular problem was, but it was nobody else's problem. 
or it wasn't enough of a property mouse that they would spend $700 on something. So I was wondering, did that at all kind of rock this idea of if I'm having this problem, then other people must be having this problem and see value in me fixing it? Uh, no, because I, I went on and, and started and, and had moderately success and, and another failures and other business uh, ventures as well. And that all has started from the same thing that I have this problem. Uh, but um, so I guess it didn't cure that for me. But to me, that's, I think that is a good way to start a business. But I think you need to have a combination of I've got this pain point and I've got this passion. Those two things are a formula for success. That's awesome. That's perfect. And that I talk about this book like every week, but that's a good thing too, where you know, you line up what you can be best in the world at, what you're passionate about and what can make you money. And, and that's what you should be doing. Um, guys, I've been talking for about an hour now. I've been trying to invite a couple of people up, given the technical difficulties that we had at the beginning. Maybe you have not seen that. Um, if anybody has any questions or anything they want to share, Lawrence, I see you out there. I would love to hear you share a little bit how you started because your story is pretty incredible. Mary, you too. Uh, you've done, you feel like <laughs> you've what, I think 10 properties you've gotten in the last two years. Pretty awesome. So if anybody has the, their own story that they would like to share, we've got about 30 more minutes here. Or if you have any questions for myself, Stephen, Tom, or AC. Yay. I would I would love to hear from Mary and just how she's doing with real estate and where the market's going and stuff. Because I think Lauren, maybe it was six months ago, you were, did you call her five minute Mary? I said she buys a place every five minutes. You call her five minute Mary. Guilty as charged. But I would just love to hear from her and what she's doing with. Um, Real estate market, where it's going, interest rates, all that kind of stuff. I just love to know that. But Lawrence, oh, good. Yeah, you're here. Hey, Lawrence. Thank you for heeding my call and joining us. Oh, he had sent me a DM, and I forgot to tell you, Lauren. He was he was ready. He was like, I have questions. Oh, really? Bring me oh. up. Oh, good. Okay, see, Lawrence, none of that got to me, and I still was like, he must have been sending out some vibes, because I was like, we need to get Lawrence to speak. Oh, that's okay. Uh, so I'll be very uh, quick because I, I definitely want to hear some other uh, stories. Um, but I think the hardest part is, you know, starting, you know, everyone goes, can fall into one of two categories. They'll either fall into, you know, analyzing everything and they just want to research everything and they want to read every book and listen to every podcast and they, you know, They'll look up and then a whole year will go by or two years. And then you have people who literally just make all of these excuses when they don't want to start. And so as much as I'll always tell people, you definitely want to do some form of research. You are not truly going to learn until you're actually in the practice. You know, when you look at big careers, like being a lawyer or a doctor or whatsoever, you're going to, you know, learn the, um, you know, the mechanisms that you need to, to be able to perform, but you don't really understand and be able to apply everything until you're actually like into it. And so for me, um, I started out vicariously, um, doing student housing where I was learning about real estate investing, 
not from me actually investing, but from investors. So when I went to college, I always like to make a joke that I started as a RA in college and then I never like left that field. So when I was in college, I was a RA uh, and, and worked in the residence hall. And when I graduated um, college, a tragedy happened. My junior year, my sister was killed by a drunk driver. And I decided not to go to law school because I was going to go to law school and being in a courtroom when the tragedy happened with my sister, that kind of like made me decide that I, I didn't want to learn how to do do anything with like criminals, anything like that. And so I was like, what should I do? Here I am being this uh, studious student and who was on route to go to law school but decided not to do it, what could I do? So when I wrote out my resume, everything was like, you know, real estate, like student properties, like being an RA. And I started working in student housing and I was learning about performers and all different things that I really kind of didn't know what they meant until I started to apply them. So that kind of goes back into the story of just going out there and starting. And so I took a leap of faith and said, if I can do this for two publicly traded student housing companies and make people's people um, millions of dollars, then I can do that for myself. And so one, I started by doing some form of research. It was a simple Google search in 2017. I found like bigger pockets and I literally wrote in a journal and said, I'm not renewing my lease. I'm not renewing. I don't want to be a renter anymore. I want to, you know, get in the game to start building generational wealth because I'm originally from the projects of New Orleans. So I'm trying to change, you know, the trajectory of like my whole family tree. And so 2018, nine months in from me writing in that journal, I'm going to not be a renter anymore. I bought my first property. People told me not to do it. Interest rates were high. Um, that house has almost beyond doubled in equity. And so that was 2018. Well, my goal was to buy a property every year. And so we know what happened in like 2019 or whatsoever. And uh, I said, in order for me to buy properties, I need to go in and I need to put action. Like, you know, I need to go and do what I, what I need to do to get the capital. So from 2022, I door dashed for a full year. I would get off my nine to five job. I would do food, food deliveries all night. On the weekends, I would do it for the first 16 hours on Saturday and Sunday. And I made about almost $20,000. So this year, I purchased my first rental property in February. And then I purchased my um, second rental property um, in late July. So now I have three properties. And to bring that all full circle, I think that you have to have a blend of one having a goal and doing a little research, but two, just jumping in and, and going for it. And so to look, look where I'm at now from last year, from going from being, you know, just having a one property as a homeowner that's built, built me equity. Now I'm going to be ending this year with three properties, one that's a primary residence and two that's, um, and two, and two long-term rentals. So I just want to tell everyone, like, go out there and start. If you're listening to this podcast, 
that's a that's something that's something that you can check off the list. Um, if you're listening to this live right now, whether it be on a podcast or a replay, please, this is your sign. Voila, to take actions. Don't overanalyze. Get in the game. Start playing. Awesome, Lawrence, and that is so cool that you wrote that down. I mean, I've heard about journaling and I've heard about manifestations and you're just kind of an example of both, but also almost like setting a goal at the same time. I love that and how you held yourself to that. Mary, how's it going? It's good. It's good. How are you guys? We're good. We've missed you. Tell us how you decided to get started and buy 10 properties in two years. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, it's a crazy story. I, I have to say, I, I sort of identify a lot with what Stephen was saying about kind of seeing how far you can push yourself and and um, and kind of how far you can go. And I, um, not with cycling, but um, I, I think once I um, came across real estate as as an investing tool, I just it just made perfect sense to me, and it something clicked, and I was like, yep this is it, right? I suddenly, you know, you saw houses as four walls of roof, run some numbers, and this is the, you know, ROI you'll get out of it. Um, and it, 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 I didn't find it scary. I, I don't know. I, I didn't see the risk. I saw the, the numbers and the, the properties. Um, and so I dragged my husband along with me because he kicked his feet the whole time, at least for the first couple of years. Um, and I just kind of kept uh, insisting and had the kind of understanding the vision, right? Um, and it and it has worked out. And I know there there is there there's has been risk, of course, but it's sort of um, less. Yeah, I, I just I don't know. I wasn't fearful about it because everything just made perfect sense to me. You know, you you buy a cash flowing asset, you have tenants, you buy in a good location, you you get the tenants in. You run your numbers really well, it's going to work out for you, right? Um, and so just that all made sense. So we, we, I just figured out where, how I could buy it, where I could get the money from um, and made it happen. Once I kind of decided it, I just wasn't, I guess I wasn't going to stop until I could kind of reach the goals that we set for ourselves. So um and i mean <laughs> you know i our first property we got was a pretty safe you know single family home but the next property i was looking at was a nine unit apartment building <laughs> and i had my husband meet us at it and i'm like the numbers and this and after a year we could refinance it'll be great you know and all this stuff and he was just like what we just bought a, a house you know um well, you're, now you want me to like renovate a nine unit apartment building, right? It kind of was a, he wasn't ready for it. Um, so we did not get that deal, but um, it sort of pushed us along. And I think as the more we accumulated, the more he sort of trusted the, the process and he um, was kind of became more on board with it. Um, and uh, yeah, and we just, you know, I got, um, pregnant in in 2021 and i was like should i uh, now okay we'll just keep going with this right so i'm like seven months pregnant i'm meeting with like two different inspection uh guys because i kind of bought two duplexes almost virtually at the same time that were like next door to each other and then i'm meeting like contractors and just like coming out and they're just looking at me like okay this is very 
large pregnant woman sitting here. And, um, but I always had kind of my why, and then I had my, um, and my, our, our like kind of big goals we wanted to reach financially. And then I had the understanding of how to do it. And again, if you just follow the steps, you stick to your criteria, um, and you know, it just kind of, I had faith that it, it would work out. Um, it just was going to take a lot of, um, effort and, and kind of confidence, I think. Um, and so, um, I did the same thing as well after, uh, the baby came about two months after, um, I was like, okay, we'll take a break. And then I saw this house and it was like a really good deal. So, um, and again, it's just uh, real estate becomes addictive and then you don't want to stop buying things. And, um, and then a last note to that, you know, um, as, as deals were kind of drying up, cause Steven mentioned that kind of the change in the market, um, you know, prices shot up and it was harder to find deals. And so I either needed to change my method of how I was finding the deals I was finding, or I was going to change markets. And so I decided to change markets and sort of jumped in on that as well. And, um, I found a market that made sense to me and thank you, Tom, the frugal gay for helping me with that as well. Um, but I started buying in a, a second market. So, um, and yes, the term Mary who buys a property every five minutes is different from five minute Mary. So just to throw that out there, but, um, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of, a, uh, kind of the, the process I've, I've been through in the last about two and a half years. That's awesome. And, and this, were you on there earlier when we were talking about how entrepreneurship and investing in real estate and these kinds of things, just challenging yourself and how, you know, you, you don't know that it's that starting down this new path isn't going to change you as much as it does and makes you kind of more confident and more capable. And I totally understand your husband not being on board with a nine unit apartment building after a single family home. And, I, you know, I was saying that I, I would not have bought the six unit apartment building had I not just bought, you know, a couple of multifamilies in the year before. And you can't really have one without the other. And then to make this change too, we were talking about, you know, this idea of let's begin with the end in mind, right? But you could not have known that the end, when you started investing in the Tampa Bay area, that you were going to end or even, you know, make a pit stop in Toledo and buy something there, right? Like you just don't know that. So um, there's just, there's starting and then there's also like continuing and, and trusting kind of your gut and making changes as necessary as well, which so I liked, I loved everything you said there. Um, let's see, we have cash flow kid. Oh, Lorenzo. Hey, Lauren, thank you so much um, for uh, allowing me up. I just mainly had a question, you know, um, I was listening to Lawrence. Um, I absolutely love, love their story. Like it's, it lights me on fire a bit and uh, reminds me of myself. I was also an RA and during, and I don't, I don't own any homes. Um, I would actually be the first in my family to even pursue that as a, as a thing, but it has definitely been a goal of mine. And I'm just in the state of my life where I'm accumulating cash to one day be able to buy in a, to buy an investment property um, and something like that. But I, I, I just wanted to ask, and maybe for anybody who's who's doing that, um, in my time as an RA, I had noticed there were some students who paid off uh, 
like I guess how you say is like they paid for the semester uh, all at once and I would wonder like how come some students can pay for their semester all at once and then some can't and then I noticed that some students would be getting scholarships and um, I guess I, I had always kind of wondered um, if we could if I could figure out a way to find student housing that wasn't necessarily affiliated with the campus um, where students could basically they have the scholarships then technically and this is just what I was thinking as a student you know back when I was there then technically you would have a tenant that you would never have to worry about paying because they would already have all of the money that they needed plus they're looking for an environment that's uh, student-based but maybe not always on campus so I'm just wondering if anyone has had any experience with that um, kind of with what I'm talking about and if they've actually implemented an idea like it. Go ahead, Lawrence. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I'm happy that my story uh, resonated with you. It's the goal to touch at least one person. So I definitely appreciate that. Um, so I personally am not running uh, right now to, to students. My area is military. So um, that's a whole nother story. But um, yes, so um, that is very popular with privatized housing um and so when you i know you're an ra so you're associated with like on-campus housing but when you are in privatized housing that's you know uh, you know owned by either private landlords like one person may own a, a complex um or it may be a big publicly traded company they have like these huge you know buildings that are near the proximity of the campus um, it's not uncommon um, because, you know, at each institution, um, there there's going to be the financial aid office, of course, and all scholarships have to go through that particular office. And each school is required to have a cost of attendance um, that breaks down tuition fees, books, as well as um, living. And so normally if a student like kind of check um, that they're going to be doing off campus housing. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're, you know, just getting more funds, but they get a ledger that shows um, a higher cost of tuition because normally living off campus can be a little um, higher. So um, in your case, if that was something that you wanted to get into, um, you would either, you know, go to the universities or, or college uh, housing office and say, hey, I am a, you know, private landlord and I'm interested um, in, in leasing um, to students. And what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to pre-lease um, because with student housing, normally you kind of want to have the lease start. Um, at the beginning of August, and then you would want all of, all of your leases to end like around July 31st so you can turn the units over the summer. So that's kind of like the difference with the student housing, you're pre-leasing. And so what you'll go, you'll go to the housing office and say, hey, I'm a landlord. These are the properties that I have available for off-campus housing. Um, you'll look at their cost of tuition and see what they allocate for off-campus housing. And then it will just be pretty much a pitch that you give to them and you give a pitch to a student that says, hey, you know, you, this university says that your, that your cost of attendance is, you know, $30,000 for the academic year with this amount of money allocated for housing. What we can do for you is if you pre-lease this unit, um, we'll, we will work with the financial aid office and usually the student, the university has like a bursar's office or a business office. 
and you would work with, um, you'll have a, a business account, of course, and what they would do is you would have that signed lease and they will release those funds for the full duration of that lease term. Or in your case, if you wanted to do by the semester, they'll release half of the funds for the fall and then half the funds in the spring. So it can be done. It's done all the time. It's just, you know, you would need to either well-versed yourself with how, you know, the pre-leasing work works or, you know, work with someone that can kind of coach you on that. So I hope that helps. Yeah, that, that helps tremendously. Um, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to address that. Um, there, there was just one aspect of it. I'm not sure if anyone is familiar with the 21st century scholar scholarship. Um, but that one specifically is the one that I had always kind of noticed was interesting um, because they, at least in my state, so it was for the state of Indiana, which I live in, and they basically would pay for housing, a uh, room and board, and um, it was on campus. But if the student did not stay on campus, they would almost kind of give that allocated money to the student to kind of do whatever it was that they wanted. So technically, it still would pay for it. Um, so that's kind of what I was wondering, and I know Lawrence, the way that you described it, um, would mean if I was already affiliated with the university or being affiliated with them. But I had always kind of noticed with that scholarship, it was interesting because you didn't have to necessarily be affiliated since, um, the end of that requirement came when the student, um, technically would check that they did not want room and board, and then they would get that allotted amount refunded to them. If that if that makes sense, so that's why I was saying like technically, um, you would if you could identify someone who had that scholarship um, and needed room and board to go to a said university around uh, your area, you would theoretically have a have a student who already had all the money for the entire semester right away, and you never really had to question uh, them about paying. Yeah, no, that makes sense now, you know, just put a little, um, like, response to it really quickly for time. But, yeah, so if that a scholarship lets a student, you know, surpass, like, um, going through the financial aid office or housing, and I kind of did a quick research that that scholarship is for, like, income base for poverty, like, I think it's a 370 rule or whatever for income. But, yeah, that means that you would just be working directly um with whoever is the liaison for that program so it, it would just be a matter of researching that program and and kind of like letting um that foundation uh for lack of better words know that you are you know a landlord that would be willing to provide housing to students who acquire that scholarship in the area where you have properties Wow, that just seems like a couple conversations and developing a relationship. So again, that makes me extremely excited. Um, thank you, Lauren and Stefan, for hosting a space like this. Uh, you all are absolutely amazing. Are there any other questions, any comments? Tom is a listener now, I think, not a speaker. Steven, Mary, AC, anything else? Um, I'll just add that since the, the title's one year from, from today, you'll be glad you started. Um, it is true that once you kind of decide what you want to get into, and it could be real estate, um, it could be, you know, Amazon selling or reselling or um, 
you know, doing something else online, um, starting a business, right? Whatever it is, as you go down that path and you've made a decision to, to kind of focus on it and put time and effort into it, it does really change you and other opportunities open up as you do it. And so you kind of, you have your goals in mind of what you want to do or, um, you know, these big broad goals of, of financially, maybe where you want to be at or spending more time with your family or um, whatever other goals that are important to you. But as you go down the path on, on the way to those goals, you, uh, it leads in different directions and it kind of, um, kind of puts these different opportunities and, and these different things you, you might, uh, start doing it kind of in front of your path. Right. And, um, and so that is very exciting. And so that is a big reason that it changes you because you get further and further away from the person you started out as, um, in a lot of, you know, in a lot of certain respects. Right. And so, um, it is a thing of, as you're going along, you feel like change is happening so slow. You, you don't feel it or see it. And it's only as you look back that you're like, oh, wow, I just did that in a year. Right. Like, you know, all of 2021, um, I bought four different properties and renovated a whole bunch and had a kid. And in the moment on, you know, February 28th, you know, it didn't feel like anything was happening. Um, and, um, but as, as time passes and as you continue to do these things, you change and grow and, um, and you, then look back at all that you accomplished. So in a year, a lot really can change. Um, and as you're looking forward, it, it, you can't see it. And then it's kind of in the rearview mirror. You're like, wow, you know, like a lot has, has occurred and it kind of, um, spurs you on to, to carry on doing that. So just kind of wanted to add that thought to all of this. No, no, I'm glad you did. That's awesome, Mary. Go ahead, AC. Yeah, I just wanted to piggyback off that, the one-year thing. Uh, as, as Mary was talking, I was like, what, is, what were my New Year's goals? Because uh, I'm, I'm really big at setting goals for myself in the year. And uh, it was to learn social media. And uh, what I, as Mary was talking, I started going back to the beginning of my Twitter profile in January. And I, I'm looking at this stuff, and I'm like, man, I, I've really grown because this is terrible. Like, I thought it was great stuff I was putting out on Twitter in January and I'm looking at what I'm doing now and I'm, I'm looking back and it's like I've learned so much I've grown so much uh, and th that just tells me that I've got a lot more to grow like you, everyone always does but anyone listening whatever you're working on go look at your emails that you were sending a year ago on that project or on that theme go look at a you know, any, 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 you know, your old, old text messages, whatever it is. And you're going to really it, probably feel really proud of yourself for sticking with it and, and where you are today and looking back at the person that you were not even, you know, 10 months ago, at least in my case. So true. And that's a good point. I, I tweeted about this. I was looking back at old tweets. Sometimes I do that for inspiration. And I was like, man, I used to use like a ton of hashtags. You know, <laughs> it's so funny when you go back, and, and it's it's interesting. And to think about going back through emails and things like that as well, you're absolutely right. Um, and just think about where you're going to be in a year, which is kind of incredible, especially when you put anybody that had enough wherewithal to even click on this space and join it. Never mind, grab the mic and, and talk about this. I mean, anybody that's listening 
has already taken a really good step to making some changes because you could be doing anything else right now. Next week, guys, we talked about this earlier. If you missed it or if it was when I was having technical difficulties, next week is the final Wealth Wednesday. Next week will be one year of Wealth Wednesdays. We are going back to the beginning and we are doing real estate horror stories. If you have some, if you want to hear ours, be there or be square. I'm going to bring some new short-term rental fodder for that. Um, I think Tom's probably got some new stuff since a year ago as well. Um, so we're, we're going to do that and it'll be at 9 p.m. Eastern. And again, if you joined late or popped in and out or something like that, this will be on the Adulting is Easy podcast feed in a couple of days. Thanks, everybody. See you next week.